Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, I want to call your attention to your Modern Art Notes podcast feed. You may have noticed a week or so ago between our show with B. Ingrid Olson and this past week's show with Rose B. Simpson that there was a little bonus for you. That bonus was the audio from the first session of the 2022 Darkwater Project Colloquium, which was titled, or which is titled, Historical American Art, Whiteness, and the Idea of the American Nation. This coming Monday, look for the audio from session two. On to this week's show. My first guest is Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego curator Anthony Graham. He's organized the retrospective Alexis Smith, The American Way. Across the Los Angeles-based Smith's career, she has used collage and installation to explore how we are shaped by the culture and media around us. Alexis Smith, The American Way, is on view at MCASD's brand new La Jolla building through January 29th, 2023. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Scala. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about 50 bucks. On the second segment, Brian Piper joins me to discuss his new exhibition, Called to the Camera, Black American Studio Photographers at the New Orleans Museum of Art. But first, Anthony Graham, after the break. On view through January 8th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition Reinventing the Americas, Construct, Erase, Repeat, analyzes the mythologies and prejudices Europeans spread after they began exploring the continent and reveals the influence that those images have had on defining the Americas. The exhibition counters the views of European chroniclers, illustrators, and printmakers from the 16th to 19th centuries with artistic interventions by Danielson Baniwa, an indigenous Brazilian contemporary artist, and commentary by indigenous and Latino members of the Los Angeles community. Reinventing the Americas is presented in English and Spanish. Watch a documentary about Danielson, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Anthony Graham, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. I would like to start with an installation that Alexis Smith made at a Los Angeles gallery in 1980. That show was called Raymond Chandler's L.A., and it all but kicks off the catalog. And I think it's a really good introduction to Smith's practice, both kind of physical practice and also kind of the issues and, and, and ideas that Smith addresses in, in her work. So maybe the place to start is is just real simple. What was Raymond Chandler's L.A. and how was it? How did Smith put it together in 1980? It is this really incredible exhibition that she did at Rosman Felsen Gallery that consisted of five discrete collage works. And, you know, aesthetically, those objects sort of look like the pieces she had really become known for throughout the 1970s. They were these paper and cut paper collages arranged linearly and framed in plexiglass boxes and installed on the wall, sort of like, you know, a book unfolded. And 
you know, they often drew from books. And in this case, Raymond Chandler and the sort of detective fiction, L.A. noir that both that author is known for and has consistently been a kind of interest and motif in Smith's work. But the exhibition really showcases how Smith's approach to collage was from a very early point really expansive, that beyond being, or in addition to being, combinations of text and image and object, they were already sort of breaking through the frame of the artwork and addressing the architecture of the space and creating these really room-sized environments. And I think, again, there are sort of traces of this kind of thinking in her her work throughout the 70s when she was doing performance and some, you know, more specific installation work. But in this show is when all of that really starts to come together. And so the collages are hung on the wall and each collage has a sort of accompanying backdrop, which is painted directly onto the walls of the gallery. So let's talk about the collage technique in a moment. I want to first talk about Alexis Smith's address of California and the far West. And I think Raymond Chandler's LA is a really good revelation of how Smith does that. How does Smith think of the American West and California in particular? For Smith, Hollywood and Los Angeles and the West are all these kinds of microcosms of American culture that they they kind of, for her, exemplify an ethos of self-invention that, you know, you can, that anyone can, you know, head West and start a new life and decide who they want to be. And, you know, of course, this is a myth. But it is one that has persisted, I think, throughout our culture and throughout its history. And it's one that she really grapples with. And so, you know, Los Angeles is her hometown. But for her, it wasn't so much that she was from L.A. that was the reason that she was interested in it. But it was really like Hollywood itself as an industry and being part of a generation that, you know, grew up watching television and watching movies And so for her, she really thought about it again as this example of American culture, that suddenly she was part of this generation that understood itself through the stories that we take in through movies. Always in Alexis Smith, the real is fake, right? Yes. (laughs) And, and, And so that's true to Raymond Chandler's construction of L.A., which was, you know, always exaggerated and always phony. And I suspect that Alexis Smith was also well aware that when Hollywood got its hands on Raymond Chandler, the first film version of The Big Sleep, you know, kind of Chandler's breakthrough novel, came only seven years after the novel had been written and was not staged in L.A. or Santa Monica, as the case may be, (laughs) but was stuck in New Orleans. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I think... (laughs) And that's one of the great things about Raymond Chandler's L.A., the installation, is that four of the collages, you know, use Chandler's text taken from novels. They use the novel The Little Sister, and that is the first novel that Chandler wrote after having been working as a screenwriter in Los Angeles. And so for me, I always think that that's such the cynicism towards Los Angeles that is apparent in the the texts Smith is using seems completely related to exactly what you're describing. This like real ambivalent relationship to Los Angeles as a city and Hollywood as an industry. So this is far from the only of Alexis Smith's works to investigate both a physical and ideated geography. And in virtually all of, ah, that's probably overstating it, but, but, you know, a majority, anyway, of Smith's works question the American dream and that question the American mythology that we can be anything we want to be. Are there ways in which Smith does that that we see unfolding throughout the show and across the catalog? Absolutely. I mean, I think in so many of her works, she is interested in in this this myth of of self invention, but. The thing about Smith's work that is so tricky is that it's never cynical. You know, there's a real kind of romance towards this dream. 
and, you know, the sort of hope and aspiration that, you know, it might come true and that for some of us it does. But exactly as you say, like the real is always scrutinized in Smith's work. And so you see, you know, these stories of success are always sort of undermined by a final tragedy, a love lost, you know, a, a life lost. And and she does that by kind of retelling the stories that get told in our books and in our movies and in advertising, like trying to really take in the the breadth of media that we consume and take seriously how it reflects the narratives that we we continue to prop up, you know? So whether that's looking at, you know, something like The Red Shoes, you know, a 1948 film that is not even American, but that props up this idea that like you can either have a fulfilling artistic and professional life, or you can have love and personal happiness and neither of those things can coexist. You know, you see that as like a really recurring subject matter in her work in the 1970s. And then coming forward into the 80s, as she really starts to address the stereotypes, cliches and tropes of our culture to point out that for all these things that we think are funny or humorous or enjoyable, that those two are laced with these these reminders that, you know, nothing quite lasts as long as we think it will. Right out of the gate, you mentioned that Alexis Smith was thoroughly dedicated to collage. Why was Smith so attracted to collage and, you know, in some ways doing something with it that many others hadn't, which was supersizing it across many rooms at once, something that I think now maybe in the art world we now take for granted, but which was, you know, massively less common 40, 45 years ago. Smith's interest in collage began in a lot of ways, like I think a lot of young people's interest in collage does, like creating these sort of scrapbook collages out of magazines. And and this was something she, you know, recalls doing as a teenager. And then while a student at UC Irvine in the mid 60s, you know, she describes like taking visual arts classes and not so much learning like how to make art, but how to be an artist that the things that she was doing could suddenly be taken seriously as works of art by her presentation of them as such. And so in many ways does come from a sort of self-confidence in her work, but she remains really committed to it, I think, precisely because of her sort of passion for the stuff of our lives, you know, that as much as she's trying to really think critically about, you know, these cultural objects that we live with, she's not trying to criticize them outright, but really trying to understand how they impact us. And so everything from books and movies to junkyard objects, things she buys in secondhand stores, She's trying to really elevate these, you know, perhaps humble objects to like the status of fine art and to take those things as seriously as we might take the opera Madame Butterfly. And so there's really a belief in questioning the distinctions between high and low culture, between good and bad taste that really motivates her work. To take a Chevrolet ad in a magazine more seriously than even Chevrolet might take it. (laughs) Exactly. And exactly. But precisely because, you know, this is a moment when all of these things are are impacting us. You know, advertising does change the way we think. And Smith is acutely aware of that. And, you know, I think throughout the 1980s, she became well known for creating works that scrutinized the depictions of women, you know, in popular culture. And, you know, for her, that was both the she wanted to take those things with the good and the bad. And, you know, that people were not always receptive to that. You know, she was seen as like almost some saw her work as celebrating these images of women that were offensive. And for her, it was more about reckoning with what they they mean in our culture. Maybe a good spot to note that Alexis Smith was pretty dedicated to showing her work with dealers who were women. Yeah. These early shows with Rosamund Felsen in New York, she was showing with Holly Solomon And then 
you know, I mean, Margot Levin is like her closest collaborator throughout the 80s and 90s and really helps to place her work in institutional and prominent collections. And, you know, Smith has acknowledged that like that's who helped her continue surviving as an artist. Like she she would say that Margot was the first person who could really sell her work. And that, you know, that matters in, in an artist's livelihood. A lot of the Smiths within the MCA San Diego collection came in from through but both from Margot Levin, but also through Margot Levin. Yeah, absolutely. When I think about Smith's work, I think of how there are a bunch of visual references or tropes that recur across it. She totally understands the way American art has been attracted to sunsets, totally understands the role snakes have played in American, particularly Protestant American culture. Smith loves, and I mean loves, movie posters. Are there places of address of Smith's that particularly interest you that you found yourself kind of most caught up in as you as you worked on the show? Because there are, you know, it ain't just those three I mentioned. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. I mean, throughout her work, there is this, you know, there there are these kind of constant motifs and themes that recur time and again. And these images that, you know, are both real things and ideas and and like the one that really began to stick with me the more I worked on this show was the image of the car which it's again such a California such an LA symbol but also one that was part of again this like west this idea of heading west you know so throughout the late 1980s and early 1990s she did a really extensive body of work informed by Jack Kerouac's On the Road and again, like it's not a California story, but it's a story of heading west. And, you know, the car, it becomes this symbol of independence, of individualism, of adventure. And, you know, those things all get wrapped up in this idea of, of self-transformation. And what's interesting is when you start to look back, you know, even just like in the years before the On the Road works, you know, the car is certainly still kind of, it it lurks, you know, there's there's a piece in Raymond Chandler's LA that's very much about driving, even though the car isn't pictured. Several of the wall paintings deal with the kind of linear perspective that one would see on the road. But, you know, then in, in even earlier pieces, you know, there's images of trains and steamboats. And, and it's often, again, this idea of like, transportation of travel of like heading somewhere new and it, it's it's really it just strikes me the ways that that idea comes forward in all these different images there's a work in which my favorite smith reference the sunset melds with yours the car and that's a work from your collection 1990s adios which is a kind of the overwheel part of an auto body panel with a sunset painted on it the bay bridge pointedly not the golden gate bridge looking west and it's kind of a dystopian work and the, the phrase that smith paints onto it is in a sad red dusk it was goodbye and it's a good example of smith interrogating the the western californian optimistic dream right yeah that you know these kind of romantic visions you know like a I mean, really beautiful sunset is then like laced with a sense of tragedy or, or ruin. And, you know, again, like this, like kind of the, the romance of it all really comes to the foreground. Also on that piece is like a sort of keychain that says melody and a like a name. A name tag of a guy at a fill-up station, if you will. Yes, exactly. Like a sort of patch of the name Slim. And so, you know, it, with just one line, you sort of, you again you have the bridge like not only do you have the, the car part itself but the bridge extending into the distance and you know this one line evocation that that is quite heartbreaking you know there's there's also a little bit of then contemporary california history embedded in that work in 1989 a part of the bay bridge collapsed in the loma prieta earthquake so when we have this artwork adios from 1990 like i'm sure that would have been you know, I mean, like, that was a pretty famous 
section of the bridge collapsing in the middle of a World Series baseball game or just before a World Series baseball game was about to start. So all, all of that, you know, kind of questioning the future of the West at, at a moment when the West... When it's literally crumbling. <laughs> yeah, hard, hard, to, hard, to, hard to miss. I mentioned movie posters a moment ago, and I think I've mentioned magazine advertisements. I think we both mentioned magazine advertisements a couple times. How does Smith use them, and why are they valuable to her? I mean, it changes over time, certainly. I mean, in the early 1980s, she does this really great series called The 20th Century, where she takes a series of sort of like classic movie posters and silk screens on top of them. And, you know, the phrase and image of the, of the silk screen, you know, stays the same in across every piece within the series, but the movie itself changes. And so in a lot of ways, it's this reminder that, you know, for all these sort of allegedly different stories and different adventures that might be, you know, captured in a movie that Smith is looking for something kind of universal that happens within them. And, and the silkscreen reads, I've died so often, made love so much, I've lost track of what's real. And you know, this series sort of ends up being kind of like a cipher for so much of her work that we're really just like, we're telling ourselves the same stories over and over again. And so whether or not they're real, whether or not they're, you know, fake, kind of stops mattering because it's just about whether or not we believe them, whether we're moved by them, whether we relate to them. And so I think there's that element to her interest in movie posters. And then at the same time, I think they also have this kind of like visual aesthetic that she's interested in. You know, she's she's typically using movie posters from, you know, the 30s and the 40s. And she's like thinking about this period of old Hollywood. And at the time that she's making this work largely in, in the 1980s, you know, this is not contemporary. It's not from her childhood, even necessarily as someone born in 1949, but kind of looking to this, you know, allegedly nostalgic vision of the past to try and tease out like what those, how those images have settled into some kind of collective consciousness and finding ways of kind of jolting us into seeing what's really there. And I think of that so much in the piece Blue Denim from 1990, which puts two movie posters side by side and then sort of joins them again by a silk screen of, of a car. And what at first kind of appears like two movies about like young rebellious love, we suddenly see how much more complicated those images are, how sexualized these teenage girls are in these movie posters and perhaps how violent these kind of voyeuristic images can be. Smith even uses movie posters when she's not riffing on the poster form. There's a work in your collection in granite, which I think is typically installed outside. Yes, it is installed outside. What's what's that work and what is the movie poster on which Smith is riffing there? And in, in a way that links her work to a vast trove of, Amer of American art, which is another Smith commonality that we're going to probably mostly skip past today because Lord knows I talk about it enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that piece, which is a sort of granite tombstone installed outdoors, is titled Niagara. It's one of, you know, I think several pieces of Smith's that use, you know, Marilyn Monroe's image. And the the work sort of depicts Monroe as pictured on the movie poster Niagara. In this instance, her her hair is sort of extends and transforms into the Niagara Falls and Again, beneath the beneath the image is the text, nothing in the world could keep it from going over the edge. And so there's again this like this hint towards, or it's not really even a hint in this case. I mean, it's it's a tombstone and has this really tragic line. And so here we are, like, you know, looking at one of, you know, America's most iconic and and infamous actresses and stars and really moved to grapple with her her downfall and, and of course not only is the headshot of the movie poster borrowed for smith's work but the bit about going over the edge is within the niagara poster you know the original 1953 niagara poster too because 
in the poster, Marilyn Monroe, you know, sort of in character, sort of in not, was there really a difference? No, is posed as kind of like reclining on the top of Niagara Falls as if she's, you know, about to go over the edge. I want to finish by talking about another hallmark of Smith's work that I think is maybe less discussed than Smith's interest in collage, which is so forward that one can hardly miss it. And that is that only very rarely do we see the hand of the artist in Smith's work. Very rarely is their hand evidence of presence in, in the work. Not unusual for an artist of Smith's generation, of course, particularly feminist-informed artists. How might we understand that? You know, it's funny because it, in some ways that, you know, almost it makes me want to go back to collage and then this idea that, you know, of course, of course her hand is there because she's so careful and meticulous in, in her combinations of text, image, and object. You know, they, her way of working was to sort of, you know, for years in her studio, there was just, you know, dozens of collages in progress laying on the ground that she would just constantly working through, you know, walking past them, making adjustments until, you know, she finally decided they were done and glued things down. But you're right that they're, you know, for, especially when we think about the ways that she's working in installation and, you know, she spent near a decade of her career focused on public art projects. You know, she was working on this scale that was completely not about her hand. And in a lot of ways, this resonates with the themes in her work since the 1970s, which is kind of calling into question ideas of authorship. You know, she's speaking only through the voice of, of others, but certainly making herself known, you know, through these kind of like interjections, through her edits, through her revisions of these, of these texts or her adjustments to the images. So there's really this interesting back and forth between really asserting her perspective, but doing so in this, this highly mediated way, which of course reflects the fact that she's thinking about the media we consume and trying to reach us, you know, through, through those objects themselves. And then again, like there's like, there's always this kind of like zooming in and then this zooming out where then you think of like the wall paintings or these giant landscapes and you know, those were done in collaboration with scenic painters, with sign painters, you know, in, in a lot of ways, she was like a stage director, you know, kind of organizing these these sets. I should note there's a substantial art history of that in Los Angeles, you know, Ed Ruscha, Judy Baca, I could go on. Yeah, absolutely. And Smith is completely part of that. And I think, you know, her distinct position in it with having made so many works addressing Hollywood and, and movies as subject matter sort of lends a certain slant to the way that she's working with these, these scenic painters and, and thinking again about these kind of like industries that literally prop us up. Anthony Graham, thanks very much. Thank you so much. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet, Barbara Chase Ribu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, the work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bowers' experimentation with a wide range of mediums and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. 
Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. Welcome back. Next up, Brian Piper joins me to talk about Called to the Camera, Black American Studio Photographers, which is now at the New Orleans Museum of Art through January 8th. The show examines how Black photographers have worked to produce beautiful portraits while also engaging in a range of other photographic work. Called to the Camera also reveals how Black studio photographers engaged movements such as pictorialism, modernism, and abstraction, and the show goes right up to the present day. The museum will publish an exhibition catalog next month. Amazon already offers it for $50. Brian Piper, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. There's a photograph in your exhibition of what was then the new photography studio at Tuskegee University as it was created by a gentleman named Cornelius M. Batty in about 1916. What do we see in that picture? And what does it reveal about, I don't know if this is the right word, but the role of the portrait studio in American and especially Black American life? Well, I love that you start with that. It's a really, really rich image that we think that Batty took when he arrived to be the head of the photographic division at Tuskegee. He had worked in New York as the head of the refinishing department for Underwood and Underwood and also had his own studios in Cleveland and New York. And he had a long relationship with Booker T. Washington, the founder of Tuskegee Institute, who really, really believed in photography's potential for black Americans at the time. And there had been other photographers working at Tuskegee. Arthur Beydou was there briefly beginning in 1913. But after Booker T. Washington passed in 1915, the administration brought down Batty to be in charge of the photographic division. In my essay in the catalog, I really started with that image because it seemed so potent in that it represented sort of a site of making and learning about photography. This exhibition really focuses on the makers of the work, the ways that they made it, and the work that those photographs did once that they were out in the world. So, you know, it is sort of a quiet image. I mean, it's posed and the students are sitting at their retouching tables, but you have all of the equipment that a fine photo studio would have needed in the early 20th century. And so it's really packed in terms of information and really setting the scene what it would have been like to enter one of these spaces in, uh, what did we say, about 1916. It also strikes me how it's a picture that stands in for how the leadership of Black America, particularly in that generation, found photography studios to be of import. I mean, it's not only at Tuskegee, right? It's not. It's actually, I mean, throughout the country. And that's one of the things that this exhibition really brings to the forefront. I mean, of course, you know, scholars like Deborah Willis and Jean Utsami Ash really laid the groundwork and, and started in the 80s and 90s to really find these names and put them all in one place. But this exhibition also illustrates that it's a national phenomenon. Anywhere there was a population of black Americans to support a photographer, there a photographer would be and really meeting the needs of of those communities and their desire for affirmative portraiture. Leaders like Du Bois recommended that young people go into the photography business. Du Bois famously devoted an entire issue of the crisis and I think 1916 to pictures of children, pictures which didn't have to come from photography studios, but certainly many did. Black photography studios came into being darn near the moment that the daguerreotype process was introduced into the United States, first in kind of newspaper form in 1839, and then in commercial form, you know, places where you could go get your picture taken the next year in about 1840. Should we be surprised by that or or not? No, we should not. And I think in part because of how exciting photography's invention was and how quickly daguerreotype he spread and enthusiasm for it went all throughout the country. 
I think that it offered an opportunity for free people of color like Augustus Washington to make a name for themselves and actually make a little bit of money. It was a livelihood as opposed to being uh, necessarily an artistic pursuit at the time. Although, you know, Ball and Washington and others did make, you know, landscape views on this occasionally and things like that, that uh, now we would talk of as, as more artistic. But there's a great enthusiasm almost immediately. And it was a field that had, you know, somewhat of a low barrier for entry. You could buy a kit and teach yourself, or there were other photographers that were willing, you know, to take on apprentices. I think that the other half of that equation is the enthusiasm that black Americans, both both free and enslaved, expressed for photography immediately. There's more and more evidence that enslaved Americans were able to seek out photographers on their on their own in the limited space that they might have had. But also free black Americans were also having their portraits made throughout the United States. You mentioned Ball. He is James Presley Ball, who was the creator of one of the most important and foundational black photography studios. Who was he and what made his his studio so important? So James Presley Ball was born in Virginia, where he actually learned photography from another black photographer named John B. Bailey about 1845, and then moved to Cincinnati and tried to open a studio, but it wasn't a real success. And he became uh, an itinerant photographer, like so many photographers were in the 19th century, moving around from town to town, city to city, taking some photographs, and then, then moving on. But about 1849, 1850, he moves back to Cincinnati and is able to make a success of his studio. The first one was called Ball's Great Daguerrean Gallery of the West. And it was a destination for people of Cincinnati, both black and white. In the 19th century, black American photographers are taking a great deal of number of portraits of white sitters. And so he had a multiracial clientele. He went into business with his brother, Thomas Ball, and then his brother-in-law, Alexander Thomas. And then they opened Ball and Thomas's gallery or under various names. And they operated that studio for several years. In the course of Ball's Travels, he also became a rather ardent abolitionist, published a pamphlet about his his travels and the horrors of slavery that he saw around the country. And he also commissioned a mammoth painting that was like 600 yards long that was on rollers that, that he exhibited in Cincinnati as well about his travels throughout the, the United States. I think Ball is also really important in part because a lot of his photographs survive but he's also sort of an exemplar of these early networks among photographers and especially black photographers that are evident already in the 1840s and 50s. So even though Ball's relationship with Alexander Thomas dissolved in about 1860, Thomas Ball stayed on with Alexander Thomas. They continued to have a studio in Cincinnati and J.P. Ball moved south and then west where he opened a series of studios with his son and daughter as well. You mentioned that Ball welcomed and, and received a white clientele as well as a black clientele. How might we understand the place or the role of black photography studios within their communities? And, and does that place change between Ball's period, the mid-19th century, as we move through the 20th century? Yeah, it's it's complicated, right? You know, in the 19th century, you have black photographers who will take photographs and do take photographs of white sitters and vice versa. There are white photographers taking photographs of, of black sitters. But somewhere along the way, that sort of goes away. The, the frequency of white sitters coming into black-owned photography studios. I can't put my finger on a direct causation, but it feels safe to say that as white Americans hardened segregation and Jim Crow at the end of the 19th century and a, a sort of separate economy in many cities uh, emerges for black Americans, especially at its height between 1900 and 1930, that sort of uh, aspect of the business sort of separates in some ways. And even in the 20th century, in many cities, black sitters would still go to white photographers. 
and that sort of never really goes away. But as you, you know, as you talked about earlier, W.B. Du Bois writing about photography and the need for young black Americans to go into the field, he comments that white photographers either can't be bothered or don't care to learn how to properly photograph and to properly light and photograph darker skins. So he states that there's a real need for for sympathetic photographers who understand why and how to to photograph black Americans in a way that is is flattering. This is an exhibition not only of portraits, but of course there are scores of portraits in the show. As you looked through what became the pictures in the show and surely hundreds of pictures that are not in the show. Did you find yourself gleaning information, historical information from how portraiture, portrait sitters chose to present themselves to the camera? That's a good question with, with kind of a long answer. And I think that comes from the length of time I've been been working on this project. My background is a little bit different than, than a number of my, my colleagues in that it's not a straight up art historical background, but my training is is very interdisciplinary in American studies. And I've always really thought about photographs as as sort of their own little arguments about ways that people are using photography, images, visual culture to to tell each other about themselves, right? So that's that's something that I'm always thinking about when I look at a photographic image, whether it's a portrait or or a, something taken outside of the studio. But I think if you sort of marry that or tie that to a question about you know, medium specificity can sometimes be a, a word that people don't like now, but the, the, the photographicness of of what they were doing, I think then you you start to think about questions of about of how they were using different aesthetic styles to present themselves, or they were, you know, posing differently, or there are different kinds of photographs that were like formats that were involved, like you go through card de visites cards to visit, cabinet cards, and so on and, and so forth. And so you can start to see people doing different things and presenting themselves different ways in, in that regard. One, you know, example that comes to mind, you know, not to go back to, to Skurlock too quickly, but having spent a lot of time looking at those photographs and and knowing that he had a definite aesthetic style that he was known for, people approached him for and what they wanted. It's known sort of colloquially in some places as the Skurlock look. And it was a combination of, you know, very precise posing, very soft focus, shallow depth of field and heavy retouching to make these sort of romanticized portraits that might could be described in some ways as pictorialist. And so this, you know, you look at so many photographs like that and it becomes sort of a brand for that photographer. And then a photograph like the one that I believe is in the the packet of images of the man with two dogs holding a hunting shotgun or rifle and a string of game in a hunting jacket full of props, you know, very much what this gentleman wanted to express about himself, but very different from, you know, anything else that I've ever seen in Addison Skurlock's sort of body of work. So I, I think things like that, little moments where sort of personalities pop out are especially interesting to me. So many of these portraits as well are really defined by respectability politics and the needs that that satisfied for black Americans in the 20th century. So they're, they're, they can often be somewhat restrictive in terms of class or gender, but in certain places you will see sort of different expressions sort of emerge through what was a typical kind of portrait during this time or a typical style of portrait that the photographers were making. One of the, one of the things that I think this exhibition, or I hope that this exhibition does, is illustrate that these photographs, any photograph can be typical in that, you know, it looks like a lot of other photographs of the time, but spectacular at the same time. I don't think those things have to be mutually exclusive. I think, you know, a lot of commercially produced portraiture in the, in the history of photography or the historic historiography of photography maybe have been neglected because they were treated as of a market or, you know, mundane. But I hope that this exhibition sort of fills that out a little bit and complicates things, especially because these photographs, including portraits, 
were the primary way that black Americans could practice and enjoy photography during, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. So to neglect that from the arc of the history of photography is really doing a disservice both to the field of photography history and to the history of these really, really wonderful black photographers. The importance of photography in telling one's own story and the representation of self is well understood thanks to the way that major figures such as Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth used it. And there are certainly, you know, works of them in the show and and other such examples. But there are also kind of moments of self-fashioning that we might not expect, including in a portrait of a woman you found in the collection at Emory University. What's that picture and what story does it show or suggest? Yeah, so that's that's one example of, of what I was sort of referring to, where different kinds of uh, maybe gender expression or identity sort of show up in these photographs that are, as you said, you know, remarkable moments of, of self-fashioning. And I included that because, you know, so many of these other photographs are shaped by the strictures of respectability politics and class and gender, gender at the time. That seemed like a really great example of somewhere that someone was using a photograph to be their own person and express themselves absolutely as they they saw themselves. That is a bit of a wrinkle because I believe that the photographer is unidentified, but it's an example of a work several works in the show where we might not know who the photographer was, but we really wanted to include a wide array of ways that black Americans were appearing before the camera and using it in a way that they felt best represented themselves. You know, we're talking about photographic studios, which inevitably conjures to mind indoor spaces, (laughs) but there are not only indoor photographs in your exhibition. So I guess studio owners went outside too, right? (laughs) Yeah, they did because they were always working. And, you know, for the most part, portraits were their bread and butter. But where there was a need and a desire and a paying customer to hire them to make photographs, they would they would often, you know, go out and do that. Um, So they're they're really two sides of the same coin. And I was really excited to include those works in the exhibition so people can start to think how, you know, those different kinds of practices are connected, but also to maybe sort of widen our view away from portraits to showcase some of the really, really dynamic photographs that the same photographers could make in addition to these really refined portraits. So you have, you know, there's event photographs at fraternal events or churches or different. A Howard Lincoln football game. Yeah, like or or yeah, people in the stands watching football games a May Day celebration at Howard University. These photographers were seemingly everywhere all at once and making just a wide, wide variety of work. And I think there, especially in those works, you'll start to see, you know, works that are recognizable as modernist or abstract and different sort of elements that are very much in keeping with what was in the forefront of photography during their lifetimes, which is not necessarily always associated with working commercial studio photographers. Ah, I am glad you brought that up. You note in your catalog essay that it sure looks like many black studio operators paid such close attention to recent developments in photography that the influence of pictorialism migrated into their work. I guess two questions about that. One, why might pictorialism as an ism have interested studio owners? And then two, how does that live in the work? I mean, I think often, at least for a Westerner like me, I think of pictorialism as generally involving granite and pine trees, (laughs) Which, which I know isn't true isn't true, but you know, <laughs> regional biases die hard. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I think, I think the long version of that is, is what folks expected portraits to do at the time. And especially what black Americans expected portraits to do. You know, if you think of portraiture in the 19th century, they were rather straightforward, you know, almost seen as, as documents, your face was to be presented straightforward and, and clear because that was how your inner 
interiority was read in the in the photograph right and you know that's that sort of gets tied up in all sorts of racial pseudoscience and and things like that but after pictorialism you know sort of emerges with those granites and pine trees that you mentioned, it's a little bit later after the start of the 20th century that people start to clamor for those kind of looks in their portraits. They Then they want to see the hand of the artist in their portrait photographs. And it starts to become, you know, I guess, fashion to have, you know, those touches, those embellishments, a sideways pose, you know, extra heavy retouching in your portrait during that time. For black Americans who in in mainstream visual culture were the sort of victims of that violent photography of ethnography and the racial pseudoscience, you know, having a refined and romanticized version of yourself in a photograph really offered, you know, a special appeal that is not too, not too hard to understand. This might be a bit of a tangent, but I I also think of someone like Booker T. Washington, who was as much of a photographic theorist as Du Bois or as Douglas and as, as Sojourner Truth or Ida B. Wells, Barnett, he would toggle between that pictorialist view and a more clean and, and modernist aesthetic, say, by somebody like Arthur P. Baidu, depending on what sort of audience he was presenting his his portrait to. So he was also like all of the names we've mentioned and many of the people we didn't mention, you know, there was always uh, strategic choices about how he was going to present himself in a photograph. And a historian, a historian named Michael Bees, who I hope I pronounced his, his name correctly, has, has pointed out that although that that sort of dichotomy that that Washington maintained through most of his life, sort of bouncing between C.M. Batty and Arthur Baidu and another photographer named Harry Shepard towards the end of uh, Washington's life as he grew a little bit more militant, sort of moved away from the pictorialist style. Finally, the most recent picture in your show is dated 2022. Why did you want to bring the exhibition into the present? And what does there being studio photographs made by black studios, you know, all the way from the 1840s into the now tell us? Yeah. So the the chance to include some really great Modern and contemporary photographers, um, some of whom are, you know, you might call emerging talents right now, was really what we would call here in New Orleans a bit of lanyard, like a little bit of an extra treat to include their work. And these are photographers whose work is not necessarily based in a commercial studio. They're working very consciously as artists, but they look back at those histories of black studio portraiture, uh, racial politics of representation and vision, and do some really creative things with with portraiture. I'm thinking about photographers like Elliot Jerome Brown Jr., India Beale, Tiffany Smith, Elena Aritam, and Aaron Turner are, what was that, four or five, five or six artists who we're really excited to include in this group as a means to, you know, hopefully encourage folks to think about the historical material they have seen and how it has really formed what we or or informed what we think of as as fine art big f big a photography today brian piper thanks so much thanks so much tyler it's great talking to you that's all for this week's show the modern art notes podcast is edited by wilson butterworth Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.